Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christopher Russell, host of today's episode, where we're talking with Dr. Babette Becker about her astonishing memoir, I Should Have Been Music, 2018, page publishing. Dr. Becker is a psychotherapist, a writer, and a certified yoga teacher. In addition to her memoir, she has written and published short stories and poetry in sixfold and flash fiction. Her professional articles have been published in Social Casework, Journal of Social Work, and The Gerontologist. She has three daughters and three grandchildren. Dr. Becker currently lives in New York City with her two cats. Dr. Becker, welcome to the program. Thank you. The memoir is your experience as a patient at a very specific time in American psychoanalysis, uh, psychotherapy. Uh for our listeners, tell us uh, about the timeline and events of the book and what motivated you to write and publish it almost 60 years later. A lot. First of all, I think I wrote, I wrote it in, 19, in the 1950s is when I was in the hospital. I wrote journals. I have them all still with me. And uh, I think for years and years and years, I had to keep it a secret because Although it was asked on applications for things, it was not acceptable. And you didn't say, yes, I have been in psychotherapy. I have been in analysis. I have certainly not been in an institution because that precludes the job immediately and most anything else. So I kept it a secret and yet I needed to tell it and I needed to tell it and I kept, it kept gnawing at me. And finally, I just decided I would write it. And it was scary, not only to write, but the fact that I am a, a psychotherapist and have a practice of my own. And what will my patients think of that if they read it or others and friends and so on? And uh, it was a scary process. And it took quite a while because it was very difficult material to deal with. And my memory was amazingly crystal clear with the help of my journals, my poetry, and of course the doctor's notes extensively, especially from the first hospital, but I have the notes from all hospitals. It was during the 50s where very, very, very little was transmitted to this country and mainly Freudian, and they kept trying to put me in a Freudian model, which <laughs> hardly fit, knew nothing about early childhood trauma, and they certainly knew nothing as early as before language. And uh, I think my trauma started way back then and continued for quite a number of years beyond that. And I think I've always felt as if I brought myself up more than anything else in, in circumstances I would not like to repeat. But I had to write the book. I had to, I had to tell it all. And what, is the, what are the events of the book? What, when does it start? What is the first hospitalization? The first hospitalization 
I was 18 and I was, it was my 18th birthday and we were driving up to High Point Hospital. But first I had tried very hard to commit suicide at Vassar. And I think that my body was no longer mine. It felt like I had been given to my father and given up by my mother. And so I both hid and put it out there for anyone to be able to use any way they felt like it because I had no boundaries that were mine anymore. And the book really starts at at Vassar Hospital and then driven to High Point Hospital where I spent the first year and a half. I'm not, I don't quite remember the timeline right now. And then went to three other hospitals after that. Each one was a different experience for me, but nobody recognized the me. I became a, a bigger and bigger pile of papers. And I think that's what people looked at. They never looked up when they interviewed me. And there I was waiting for somebody to actually look me in the face. And instead they were busy reading papers. Well, at one point you 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 write that they were trying to flatten you into their book of cures. Right, right. And and they were very they were very pat as far as how I would fit in what they knew. And what they knew was very simple. Actually, I don't know whether I'm skipping ahead of your questions or not, but I think very few years ago, probably 10, I really found out that the psychiatrists who were taking care of me were probably all of 10 years older than I was. In fact, two or three of them I have, I have had quite a bit of contact with since then, one in particular that I'll tell you about at a later point. But what was interesting is, of course, this was a very young population who knew very little about anything, let alone even less than was given to people who had, quote, more experience, which which was still a very short period of time. But um, they were graduates of, you know, the programs in med schools, and this was their first shot working with the most psychotic population, which was (laughs) crazy, absolutely crazy for, for this to be thought of as any kind of mental health. And they were, were certainly not professionals in it. So the for our listeners, the structure of the book is your journals, but you also you know mentioned that you get the records. How did you get a hold of your, your records and their process notes? My therapist at the time actually received them because I wasn't allowed to have my own records. So Carl Berg, who is my therapist, through all of this, wrote to each hospital, and they sent him the records. So the the structure of the book, um, it was really uh, amazing to read because you read, you know, we're with you. We're, we're you. We're uh, going through the experience as you. And then we read the the notes from the doctors from the hospital, and they're the, the type of process notes that – I was, you know, to a certain point, a little embarrassed. I'm like, I've written notes like this. They are notes that uh, fit the theory and have have very little to do with the person in front. And in the very first intake with the committee, um, and they write, uh, you know, uh, sexual seduction 
Oedipus. They never they never talk about his assault. They certainly don't use the word rape. No, in fact, what I heard all the way through in my delusions, apparently, because either my father or my stepfather's penis wasn't big enough, or they weren't a good enough lover, or I wanted more and didn't get it. But I was angry because of my sexual, uh, incomplete sexual experiences with these men. And of course, penis envy was the big thing then. And uh, this was about as far from anything I could possibly imagine. Well, I think at one point you write that throughout all of the treatment, that whatever the encounter was, they said either had to be your imagination or your fault. Right. And the latter particularly. I mean, I do have a good imagination, (laughs) but, (laughs) but that's not where it's operative. And it's certainly, I think, you know, it's amazing how little in many ways this has changed because it still seems to be the woman's fault. Of course, there there was there wasn't any out whatsoever because it was it was defined as your fault to begin with. So that was no question. That was an automatic response. But they kept they kept being glued to this this kind of answer and this kind of routine. And I didn't even realize, I knew from my meetings with the psychiatrist, but I didn't even realize how totally offensive their notes were until I received them. And I was outraged. And I wanted to say, no, 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 (laughs) no, no. (laughs) Well, it's, it's outrageous to read them. I mean, it's, it's, it's just uh, astonishing. Um, Tell us uh, about the image on the, the, the cover. The image on the cover actually is an image portraying the first story that starts the book. Actually, the book starts with a, um, uh, what do you call it, an intake interview, an intake uh, a piece of writing by, the, by the, uh, the people on the staff at High Point Hospital. But my first beginning to the book was a story called The Diving Board. And it was a story of my father owned a farm that he got in some gin deal. I'm not sure what. But he was at the time divorced from my mother, had been for some time, and was was had as his girlfriend a woman by the name of Ruth Bloom, whose, <laughs> whose stage name was Aurora <laughs> Lane. And she was a water ballet swimmer and had a figure like the old Barbie dolls with lots of tits and no hips. And um, and I remember her diving into the water and not even breaking the water. But my father used to laugh at me, and I was 12 or 13, 11 or 12. I think I was about 12. And he would take pictures of me, who had a child's figure and didn't develop into anything remotely like a woman until I was about 16. But he would take pictures of me and... Ruth together, and of course I hated her, and was wildly embarrassed and ashamed and and wanted to do nothing but hide, which she wouldn't let me, and he was merciless. And she was supposed to teach me to dive and put me up on the diving board and showed me first how you take three steps, jump, and then jump in the water. And as I said, she never even broke the water. And so I would start taking three steps, 
the three steps, come to the end of the, of the diving board and go back and try again and again and again and was teased much through this whole process and finally decided that I would do it. And so I did up and landed on the diving board and fell in the water. And Ruth rescued me because I was obviously had a concussion. I was drowning and she dragged me to the shore and pumped the water out of me. At which point my hatred for her really blossomed into great love because she had saved my, my life. I turned around and my father had gone with his car. There was no car there. And he, he had never, he never knew of this process and obviously didn't care. And that was the story. Right. And that's the, the whole book begins there. And the whole book begins there. What is the title? I should have been music. I should have been music was, first of all, it came to me very naturally long before I finished the book. But I was always fascinated by both music. In fact, when when I was much older and studied at Columbia, Vassar and then Columbia, I majored in musicology and went on with that. But at this time, I think that music and dance uh, was the center of my life in many ways. And, but it ended, I was fascinated by the movement of it and it kept going. And I wanted to capture the beautiful moments in both the music and dance and couldn't because it kept, it kept moving. And it felt like me, except that both the dance and the music had an end. It came to an end of a piece or the end of a dance and my life kept going and I had wanted it to end. What's amazing about the the keep going um, is the experience that I had reading the book both times, reading it the first time through, and then and then reading it to prepare for today. Um, you and I had met. Yeah. You had said, "I've written this book, so I know that you're alive and well in in 2019, uh, and I know that I know the end." And yet, the words that came to mind as I was reading is, "This is brutal. It is harrowing," and. I know intellectually you've you've in a sense made it out that you have kept going, but when I was reading it, I was with you, and you describe what it's like to go through ECT, and even more vividly for me, the insulin coma therapy. I did not, you know, we're going down the hall with you for that that treatment, um, and I had to put the book down and and, and stop. But what was so frightening about insulin is that they've done some longitudinal studies. It was banned right after they finished my, my treatment because they found that some huge number of people either died from it or were brain damaged. And I was probably the very small percentage of people who I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, which kind of never happened strangely enough, and I was think I waited all my life for that shoe to drop. But I kept thinking it's like it's like a car swerving and missing you by an inch. You know, it was just so devastating and so frightening to look back both on the process that I had to go through, being followed around by people with jars of sucrose, of glucose, of being told that I, that I, you know, can't 
can't even go to the bathroom by myself because I might go into a coma and die. And, uh, you know, just waiting in the morning for the shot. And, and of course, it did nothing but give me a, another traumatic experience to add to the others. The one thing that it did do was the person who brought me out of it, which was her face, the doctor who was, who was manning the awakening process. And I think that was the first, the early, 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 early childhood experience of seeing the mother's eyes and, and mouth configuration. And that, I remember looking at her face and seeing that early configuration and her smiling and not like my mother where I saw the pain in her eyes, but I saw this woman smiling at me and I saw my own reflection in her eyes. And I think that's what started me on, on life. And this is Hendy? This was Hendy. So who, who's Hendy? <laughs> Hendy and another woman were brought to a High Point Hospital from England they were psychiatrists. They had won some kind of a spe- special fellowship to be over here for 10 years and uh, see what American psychiatry was like. And then, I guess, go back to England and whatever. Uh, Dr. Ursula Henderson, known as Hendy, was uh, funny, married a guy from the Disney studios and managed to stay here. In fact, she's still here, and I visited her about three years ago. <laughs> And and did periodically ever since then. In fact, she and I became very, very close friends, even from a distance. And she sent me some people who had moved from California, where she was then living and still is, to New York as, you know, as uh, to work with me as a therapist. But um, I remember I was first sent to, I mean, there's a whole process of the book going through but I got to High Point Hospital from Kings County where doctors wanted to send me to Creekmore, a state hospital, where I might have remained all my life. But fortunately, an intervention by my then stepfather, who got hold of this doctor's Rose Beagle, who must have been 102 <laughs> years old, who was angry at still being at still in practice and didn't like me at all because I was troublesome and quite a nuisance. And uh, one day, Dr. Henderson happened to be in the hall when when Rose Spiegel came in, who was obviously very angry. And Dr. Henderson called me in her office and said, that's not going to get you well, is it? In a very English accent. And I just looked at her in amazement. (laughs) Well, but it's interesting because, you know, in the book, we have met as you said, these young doctors, only maybe 10 years older than you, trying to you know fit you into theory, not really listening, not you become a pile of papers, as you said. We meet Rose. When we meet Hendy, I mean, she's a breath of fresh air for oh us as God. well. Yeah. How much of that was just who she is and how much of it was how she was practicing in London? Well, I think it was probably a lot of who she is. She studied with Artie Rentlang. She studied with people who uh, were very new at the time, who had other theories and other practices other than Freudian, number one. And number two, 
her personality. I mean, she said, I was flying by the seat of my pants, but I knew you were in there somewhere. I mean, that's literally what she said she'd go by. And we just talked, you know, but we just talked like people, (laughs) you know, and it surprised me. And then, of course, she announced actually after I was out of the hospital that she was getting married, moved to California, and I had to go through quite a bereavement process. But at least I had been out of the hospital by that time. Well, there was there's a scene in the book when she's still treating you, but she goes, I think she goes away to London and you go to her apartment. Oh, yes. You got plastered <laughs> at the bar downstairs and kept insisting that she was upstairs and they kept insisting that she wasn't there <laughs> and was determined to find her. And I never told her about this and nobody ever told her at the hospital that I had gone through this at all. Of course, they finally came and got me through whatever process. I don't remember at this moment. Um, But uh, I started at Columbia then. She finally came back and, and we continued shortly before I got out, but, but she never found out about this. Has she, has she read the book? Oh yeah. She said she, I sent it to her. She said she did not sleep all night. She read the whole, but she said, you were much too kind about me. <laughs> but she read it one night. She couldn't put it down. Well, that that was my experience. I think I told you I have, you know, usually five to seven books going. Yeah. And I, I picked up yours and, and, and it was, it's, it is unput downable uh, as they say. Um, you mentioned the, they were going to send you to, to, to Creedmoor and, and how close do we come to never hearing from you? Cause this is the fourth hospital. I mean, you know, I had a weird sense of humor through all this terrible devastation that I went through. And I remember at Kings County when there's the three PC that decides where you're going to go, were interviewing me and asked me questions like, where was I? Duh. I was in Kings County Hospital. Well, what corridor you were on? How can I know what corridor when there's no signs? I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball with me. And they asked me questions like, how do I feel? Well, how would you feel if you were, <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they were all, they didn't, they didn't hear the humor at all. Well, right. I mean, even. Or the logic of not being able to answer this question. Who is president of the United States? I mean, I did know that, but I couldn't tell what corridor was on because there was no marking. I told them the signs that I did see. But they didn't catch it at all. So they figured, I don't know what they figured, but I was down to go to Creedmoor. You know, and I don't know what my experience would have been. But Yeah, I mean, it's it, it reads like a, 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 a great thriller. What's going to happen? What's going to yeah. happen? Um, and even, like I said, even though I knew what was going to happen, it's unbelievable that you make it out. Um, who did you write the book for? You you talk about the dedication. This book is for. I mean, I wrote it because I had to say it, but I wanted to, I wanted people to know about our mental health system as well. I mean, I think the first person was me, but I think I really wanted to write it to, I'm not sure. I think I wanted to write it to everyone and to, 
screaming to the health department, you've got to do something. You've got to find out. Somebody has to know, understand something about how things work in our heads and what memory is and what what discomfort is and what tragedy is and what what trauma is and what happens in families. And of course, at that, at that point, nobody had really developed any, any medications no, way back then. Nobody knew anything about early childhood trauma at all. And that had to be known. I mean, here we were dealing with, I mean, uh, the, like the lobotomies were still going and, and, uh, the whole chapter of Vera mm-hmm. and her lobotomy and, and looking at this and, and knowing that, that half her, half herself was taken out. And it was uh, terrifying to me that they could just go in her head and take her out the same way men had gone in my body and taken me out. And I couldn't understand how people could do this. This is the only safe haven we have is our bodies, supposedly. And Vera didn't have one, and I didn't have one. And uh, and others didn't have one. And I wanted people to know, where do they go? How do they, can, can you get them back? And how can you train people to understand people if they if you become a pile of papers? Right. So you, you train, you, you are a psychotherapist. In your training, I assume that you came across the literature and the theory that had been applied to you erroneously. How did you navigate learning? Well, by that time, yes, I, of course I read the material and, and I've subsequently read Freud and others, but there had been, by the time I was going through my training, um, having had kids first and doing it slightly later, there had been many other people who had been writing stuff that was quite different and had many theories. And although I, mine was always with me and began to develop my own practice that was very much off the mainstream because I've always been off the mainstream and worked with, and people used to say I had in my private practice, uh, sicker people than were in the clinic because I could work with them very easily. Somebody would come in and say, I have stones in my pocket to keep me in the chair. And I'd say, do you have enough? I mean, you know, and this was, I have, I still have a painting that she had done for me. And um, I had no trouble. I worked with a group training paraprofessionals, which was just the start of training paraprofessionals at Bellevue Hospital. And I went into all kinds of psychotic wards there. And the woman who was head of the occupational therapy department said, how do you do this? And I think Suzanne was the only person that I had ever told about my own experience and said, I've been there. And, uh, but I, I, I just had to take what I could take, what I thought were good people like Winnicott and people that I really appreciated and respected, uh, and brought them into my own practice. And I'm rereading some of the stuff now with Buddhism and psychotherapy and how pertinent Winnicott is 
although he didn't talk about it as such. But I realized that in my own developing of my own practice, it it really is very much. Uh, I think I think very much re- it's very much relevant now to what's happening with people and to recognize first of all, if nothing else, how to recognize who people are and what they need and listen listening. And nobody listened to me, but to really listen. So you you mentioned the stones in the pocket, and this this is a character, one of the most three dimensional characters in the book. Who's Bill? Uh, someday Bill will call me from somewhere in the world and ask me to buy him a ticket to New York. Bill, Bill is a guy in Hillside Hospital who is there as a patient from. Israeli parents. He was born in Israel and they came when he was a small boy to New York. And Bill was frail and beautiful and an artist, beautiful painter, and 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 a child in many ways. And Bill and I became very, very attached. And as as people, I mean nothing happened in in terms of any, you know, any any romantic piece as far as as lovers or anything, but we were infinitely close. We wrote letters to each other in the facility and um, just imagination. And we went places together and I went to his home and met his parents. And we just, you know, I sort of followed him over the world. And then he, I was out of the hospital. He, I think, left the hospital after me. Went home, was at at Ward's Island for a while. And then his parents took him to Israel and he continued writing me and he wrote me from various wanderings across the world where he was hungry and without money and God knows what he was doing, but would write letters to me like I was in the same place that I was in 1958. Right. Although he knew I had, I had married, divorced, had three children he still always thought of me as as me in 1958, and that never changed. So I've still expected him. He knows where I live, which is the same <laughs> place I've lived for a while now, and I expect him to turn up at my doorstep somehow, because I know he. I just know it somehow. I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Well, he's amazing because in the book we we meet him, and you the structure of it, his letters to you. And some of yours to him, that was fun, uh, fun, like punctuation in the book, breaking it up into sections. Yeah, we had a fascinating correspondence because it wasn't I did this and I had that experience and I met this. It was just much more imaginative than that. It was, you know, just things that came out of our heads, not our not our daily activities. But I remember things. I remember Bill being around when at one point at Hillside, they had two medications at that point, which were absolutely and totally numbing. One was Thorazine and the other was Tofrenol. And they gave me Thorazine and it deadened my body and sped my mind. And I felt like I was in jail and I screamed for three weeks. And I think Bill was the only one who just held my hand. But Finally, of course, they thought I was going through a psychotic episode, 
And finally, somebody, maybe it was Bill, who said, take her off the medication. And after three weeks, they cut the medication and I, my body and mind came together again. But it was, I remember that experience and nobody would listen to me. And I just screamed and cried and screamed and screamed because they felt like my mind was in jail and my body wouldn't move, just wouldn't move. It had stilled me completely and they kept giving me more and more and more. And I kept, I got to a point where I'd sit in a chair and couldn't get up. But the mind was going all over the place. This obviously the idea of, of, of listening and being listened to when I when I read the the book, the, the stories. And as I said, you know, it was it was brutal to go with you. At the same time, it was a benefit for me when I then went and sat with patients. I felt myself much more receptive, much more open. I mean, it in the book induces uh, enormous uh, amounts of receptivity. I think it's a book for clinicians. Um, and it's almost the the openness that one feels after a great yoga class, and you're also a yoga teacher. And, you know, there's a theologian named Matthew Fox who says yoga is the psychoanalysis of the East. Although knowing Matthew, he probably said psychoanalysis is the yoga of the West. But how do they how do they work together for you? Well, I had always in my practice used many of the stillness uh, practices, uh, never calling it meditation or mindfulness because those words weren't around then. But I worked with a lot of breathing, a lot of deep breathing, and found out that I would have patients build a room that was safe inside their bodies. And we would work to get comfortable with that room so they could go there. And the process was really very close to the kind of knowledge in oneself that you can come up with in meditation and stillness. And I I would use yoga movements and I didn't even know where they had come from. They just sort of came from, you know, just naturally from me, but they seemed to to accomplish what I had wanted to accomplish along with the psychotherapy that I, that I was doing and, uh, and starting to teach. I don't know whether I teach yoga like a psychotherapist or do a psychotherapy <laughs> like a yoga teacher, but they seem naturally to, to complement each other. There was no doubt in my mind that they come. And I actually took the training, not even thinking of teaching but to improve my own practice because I had fallen in love with it as I had been a dancer and still dance. I do Afro-Caribbean dance, but um, it just seemed like such a natural to do both where I could really work on the body and the mind, which I had always tried to, I think in my whole therapy, my whole therapy approach was to put together and make whole the body, mind, and emotions, the intellect. It was all a piece which nobody ever recognized in me, but that was paramount in my own thinking. And, you know, at, at the time I had won a National Endowment on the Arts grant at the new school, which created an art, creative arts center for older adults, had very, very much the same kind of feeling with it. You know, so that's been my life mission. 
you know, for whatever, whatever little pieces there are that finally went together. And your 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 practice, you you work with older adults, with families. Yeah, now it's 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 very interesting because most of my people are are young from twenty three or four to. 37 or 38 and a couple more stragglers here and there and a couple of older people still. And I got a call the other day from uh, somebody at a factory somewhere on way West 15th street that said we had a, uh, an employee die suddenly due to grieving. And I of course said, yes. And, and she's talking about 50 or 60 people who were, impacted by his death and we talked for a minute I, I have much more to find out about it but I asked how many would be individually interested in seeing me as well and yes I would come over and do grief counseling but you know and asked her several questions but again it's like that kind of thing is beginning to be recognized by lay people but it's interesting to me how little in some ways the mental health uh, network and the mental health system in terms of facilities has not changed. And their manner of, you know, they're, they're, they're very product oriented. We have to get this client a diagnosis and we need to write up about it. And most of the writing time is used up by putting together paragraphs rather than working with the people and they have to get out these reports in order to get funding, and it's all screwed up. It, it it doesn't work for people who are who need help at all, still. And it's very much, uh, very much. It, it's surprising how much is the same with all the medications, with all the people who have been writing, with all the training that's going on. There's always there's there's still too much of. We know too little. We know a lot about the moon. We know much more about the moon than we do what goes on in people's heads, let alone the rest of their bodies. When you're when you're in the the hospital, you know, uh, in this time, how many people do you represent in this book? I'm not quite sure of. You're you're writing your experience, but right. how many how many people had your experience? I think many people did in yeah. many ways. I think you know because people like Jane, for instance, mm-hmm. who was the smoker, um, continual smoker. She, her her hands were yellow, her cheeks were yellow, her lips were yellow, her teeth were yellow, and she she had been there so long that she had one of the staff by her side to light her cigarettes, <laughs> but. She had been there for years and years and years and years, and there was no reason for it. You know, I mean, Jane, After there's a five-year limit. And after you've been in, and I came very close to it, but there's a five-year limit, or I felt that there was, where you become institutionalized, and it's too, it's like jail. It's too, it's almost too, that's why there's so much recidivism in our system because we don't really know how to process people to go out or to get well or to look at the world or to become part of the world. And it becomes too scary. I mean, you're sent out there and have to navigate and 
have no lessons in how to do it. There's no instruction for, you know, welcome to the world and the door opens and there you are. And it's terribly, terribly scary. No matter how bad the institution is, it you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you have a bed to sleep in. And you do in some form in jail. And it's not so far from the system. And we know the mental health rate in jail is phenomenal. But there are lots of people in all these hospitals that, that could have been out had they gotten the care that they needed, whatever that was. You know, yes, there are probably a few people who who would want the system because that was their modus operandi. But there were really, I think most people were there because they were misread. But it's interesting because it does read like a jail. You talk about what floor they put you oh, on. Oh, yes. There's a whole system of how the floors work and how the levels are graded and when you get a cigarette and what you have to give and your prize money for this and who you have to, what you have to do to get a candy bar and what you have to do to get anything, anything to be let out of the room. You know, people would, would, could the staff, especially at night could demand anything that they wanted. And you gave it because you had no choice. You had no choice. You had no choice if you wanted to get a meal. You had to let some, you had to suck somebody's cock. I mean, that was the way it worked. And they had formal psychiatric meetings with you periodically, where they had preformed questions that you knew had been a plethora number of people before you. It wasn't They weren't questions geared to you at all or anything about what was going on with you. They were, you know, like these formal questions, and then you went, were sent back to your floor, and they wrote lots of notes on them, you know, which said nothing. It didn't mean anything. But there was a whole table of these, of the white males in their suits, <laughs> you know. There wasn't a female in the group and until I met Rose and, and, and of course, Andy and um, her partner was also from England, who went back to England when when Dr. Henderson, when they had finished their two years. But there weren't women around at all. They just weren't, except on the floor there were AIDS. And you knew exactly, immediately, who or what kind of AIDS and who could give you what and what you had to do for what else. And I mean, it was, it was a barter system. And you were shipped from floor two to floor floor if you had an infraction and you screamed too loud because, you know, or banged on the walls because you were angry. They shipped you up to, you know, to a closed floor and they'd lock the doors behind you so you had to sit in the hall all day or sit in the day room. And that was it, you know, and it was all punitive. It was all punitive. The whole system was punitive. It was your fault for being sick altogether. Well, you write that the whole point for them of ECT that simply meant better behavior. Right. It's exactly. And of course, the ECT was 
much stronger than they ever give it now for multiple reasons. They gave no anesthetic of any kind. And I remember, I mean, still the vision is in my mind of knowing and watching my own body go into electric shock and seeing it go rigid and lift up from the, the gurney. And I was telling this to the doctor because it terrified me so much. And everybody said I was crazy because there's no way I could, rec- I could I, no way I could have that vision. And I said, why not? I wasn't put out. I wouldn't, you know, nobody gave me anything to put me to sleep or anything. I was wide awake and I saw my body go up and, and go into tremors and it was terrifying. So people saying you're crazy, you didn't see it also in, in not being listened to, so you write the book and you present it and there's people that want it toned down. Oh, yes. I had an editor for, for a while, a very nice woman, Laura, somebody, I can't even remember the name of her agency. White, I'm not sure. But a couple of, she's, you know, she loved it. She read it. She said, if only you could do such and such with whatever part it was, which I did dutifully. And then it turned out that she kept asking me, to write this differently or to tone it down or to smooth it out or make it into something else. And I finally said, I finally said, no, you don't want to hear my story. My story is very raw and you're not about to let it be what it is. And so I quit. And that happens in the book as well. I mean, you, you leave, in a sense, by saying no, someone tells you you're not ready to leave. Yeah. The the social worker at, at uh, Gracie Square called me in and, and, and said, so you want to leave and pointed this finger at me and said, you're not, I'll see you back here in three months. And she was not about to say anything positive. And I said, you know, to myself, fuck you. <laughs> and and knew that I was never going back. All I needed was that challenge. And I felt terrified, but I was not going to go back. But you had tried once before. There's the story of the apartment I, on Jane I Street. I tried once before. And I guess my mother had tried and got me this little... Is a studio, but it was it was a stewed. It was so small; it wasn't even a studio. <laughs> and the kitchen was like as big as your desk here, with it with it with it with a refrigerator that was sort of at your knee level. And you know, a sink in the bathroom was, you know, you bumped knees with the bathtub when you were sitting on the toilet. And I used to walk the streets until I was so tired that I could go home and go to bed because only if I looked right out of the corner of the window and leaned way out, could I see a tree with the building right next to me that I looked, I looked at this wall, but I could see this little tiny sliver of tree and sky was the only real thing in the, in the apartment that, that, that I had a window for. And, um, and the guy downstairs would bang with his broom. He went, you know, I mean, it's just, it didn't work. And I found, I mean, I knew I wasn't ready, really. And so 
again, I took a bottle of pills and called Dr. Silverman and said, this is what I did. And obviously they came and got me and put me back in the hospital. (laughs) I ran another couple of hospitals. (laughs) But I, I didn't know how else to tell anybody besides doing, I think, I think throughout, I mean, I had some pretty, pretty, pretty psychotic breaks in there too, but I felt that the only way anybody would ever, ever, ever hear me, whatever they did with it, was to do something so bad and so, so out there that they had no choice but to listen to me. You know, whether it was, whether it was taking a bottle of pills of their shitting on my bed. I mean, something that was so dramatic that they had, I mean, it still didn't work. They punished me for all these things, but it was almost worth getting the punishment than to get ignored completely. You know, so that was another one that I found. But I was terrified. I had a job. I got a job at Dell Publishing, and I was good at it. And... um you know, and I love people there who are finally let go. And, you know, and I, I, I got scared enough so that I, I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't face being let go because I wouldn't know what to do with another rejection. And whether that was a personal rejection or a company rejection, it didn't matter to me because I just couldn't face it and began to, just get more and more scared about being in the community and not, I had no one to talk to. I saw my doctor once a week, but that was nothing again. It was just, he was a very sweet man, but <laughs> that was all. And you said your mom wanted you to take the apartment. She has an interesting relationship with Dr. Rabiner, Rabiner. Rabiner. Oh. What's their relationship? I mean, my mother, my mother was very beautiful and actually a good painter and a good poet, but nuts, absolutely nuts. She wrote a, a auto, an autobiography called The Lavender Train, which was sort of a stream of consciousness thing, and never had a daughter in the book. She never had, she was very explicit about all the affairs that she had, of which were many, but she never had a daughter. She, but she met a woman on the train who was obviously me, but an ugly version of me, and took very small space in that in in her in her uh, in her memoir or her autobiography, and uh, and she left it in her loft one summer for me to read. Why I don't know, but I asked her. I said, "But she never had a daughter, and she never told me why she wrote the book." and 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 but she was pathologically narcissistic and and was in competition with me most of the time and whatever i did i mean i was a talented kid and tried everything and studied with hans hoffman when i was 15 and did all kinds of things and she'd take it from me and and talk about it, that it was sort of her work or her inspired work and never encouraged me to go on and practice and work through anything so I could become good at it. I learned how to play the piano easily, but once I had to get into technique, 
nobody encouraged me to go on, so I, I quit because I didn't know how to do it. And that happened with everything. And she was, I mean, she did find the apartment, but it was Stanley, her husband, eventually, who got me into Gracie Square, even though she, even though I was with Rose Beagle, who was the old lady psychiatrist who hated me, but nonetheless, I got out of Creekmore. You know, it, it's, but, but everybody kept saying, oh, you're so lucky to have such a beautiful mother. And uh, a couple people really knew what that, you know, what she, who she was in relation to me. And I mean, she didn't know anything about being a mother and didn't want to be, obviously. Well, you, I think you write in the book, she comes to the hospital but doesn't visit you. She visits no, the doctor. No, she visits, I'm, I'm at the balcony waiting for her to come and she goes in and goes straight to his office. And I don't know, she went to psycho, she went to analysis once and had an affair with Shandor Feldman, <laughs> her, her psychoanalyst. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Remember <laughs> Shandor with his very German accent. Accent, accent. (laughs) But, you know, she was, she was, she didn't want to go to the hospital. She didn't. In fact, when Vassar called home after I had tried to kill myself there by by taking pills and doing whatever I could and was in the infirmary, it took five days before she even called the, the the infirmary to find out if I was still there. And it was only on Stanley's persuasion that the two of them drove up, I think, five or six days. But that first chapter when I was in the infirmary and uh, where she was so more interested in telling the staff that she was an artist and and showing off her 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 beauty and her work and had very little reason for being there that had anything to do with me. And I remember, I remember the whole conversation about Stanley and saying my father was two fathers away. And, you know, I mean, she was, that whole first chapter is nuts as far as she's concerned. And, and that was my life. And Stanley is? Stanley is, was a stepfather, was a poet, Stanley Kunis. Who is who is a well-known poet? They weren't together. They were together when I was about nineteen, and actually stayed married until they both died. Way up, he was a hundred and one, almost a hundred and one, and she was ninety-two. But um, I asked Stanley once, "How did he marry? Oh, why? How did he marry my mother?" And and he talked about he thought she was not only beautiful but kind of magical until he got to know her and then realized she was crazy. <laughs> Did either one of them read any drafts of this early bits no. of this book? No. Stanley wouldn't read anything of mine. And my mother was too busy with her own things. Have your daughters read this? Uh, Sherry, my youngest, they each have a copy, obviously. And Sherry, my youngest daughter read a draft and was very shaken by it. And I don't think her sisters have read it yet, although they both have a copy and I wrote a dedication to them. But 
I suppose they will probably someday, but not yet. Well, you you write somewhere in the book or that that obviously putting this out there, you really expose yourself and that you worry people will look at you either searching for psychosis still or abandon you. Has either one of those things happened? Uh, no, I think I've shown the book or I don't know who's read it. Yeah. But um, the people I've actually given a copy to or sent a copy to are people that I could trust. Yeah. That were either relatives of mine or or else knew about that I was in the hospital, obviously my cousins and stuff, but um and Dr. Henderson and uh a couple of friends of mine, two or three or four friends of mine, and you, obviously. But I think I've shared it with I mean, I know it's out there and I expect people to be able to read it. I haven't gotten any negative reactions. And of course, I've been a, a little bit worried about what, but I think the story, well, one of my clients did because I had a, a whole thing from a publishing company that wanted to write a script and send it to movie houses and all sorts of stuff. And I said to Holly, who works for a publishing company, um, a music publishing company, but knows a lot about publishing. And I gave her the book. She didn't read the whole book, but she read excerpts and she knew about the, she knew the story. And we worked with it, and she didn't phase her at all. She's still coming as a patient of mine. You know, so I, I don't think now it would. I think they would have, I think they, certainly the population I'm working with now, for the most part, would appreciate my background because they could relate to it. Right. Right. And have you, I mean, I've, I certainly know when I trained and people I trained with you, have you had the experience of having somebody come in and going, there I am treating someone who's, you just really recognize. Yeah. 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 Terrific. It's fascinating. And there, there really isn't a person that, First of all, I sort of believe everybody has their own trauma, whatever they want to call it, and abuse, and it can be very subtle, but how they were react, they reacted to it, in their own upbringing, it was abusive. And I think for many people, all through my practice, I was the first one who understood what they were talking about, yeah. and wasn't shocked by any of it, you know, and have had people, I had a woman come, was referred to me by actually the city of New York. Um, she'd been in and out of institutions all her life and had worked for, she was a crack editor apparently of one of the publishing companies um, and very good. And when she lost her job, she had nothing in her life to hold her together at all. And she had tardive dyskinesia from medications that have never been monitored. And she came to me to kill herself but she wanted me to keep her alive until her sister-in-law got through the elections that she was up candidacy for in South Carolina or Virginia or something. And I worked with, with her for until she killed herself. And finally at the end, I mean, it was a long story. I've written a story about this. And at the end, I said, I have to fire myself. 
because I can't condone your suicide, but I do, and I'll help you through it. Because she had nothing. She'd been, I mean, she had literally no life. She was in her 60s and had done whatever she could and now finally lost her only, her only connection to structure of any kind. And, um, and her family knew what, what, what was going on and they were fine. They understood really what, who I was and what I was doing. But then she proceeded to do a gotcha at the end. She called me one day and said, I'm outside of a hotel, but I won't tell you which one. I'm going to go in and put a plastic bag on my head, and you can't find me. And I went and took a dance class right away because I had to get out physically with all that stuff was. And then went to my own therapist. <laughs> what are you writing now? I'm writing now. Uh, I was going to Cuba for about 12 years and had this rather bizarre relationship with this rather arrogant neuro, Cuban neurosurgeon who couldn't get out of Cuba, although we forged things and got him out for a short while. But that was his own story. And a uh, crazy story that I'm trying to use elements of but fictionalize and make a third person not me. But I have themes where I'm really writing it as a mosaic and writing just incidents rather than short stories and just have themes that run through it. But I'm trying to use that material from my Cuban experience. And it was quite an experience. The thing that finally broke up the relationship is that I had learned pretty fluent Spanish because they didn't speak any English. And finally, after obviously many, many years, he refused to learn English. And I said, not only have I learned Spanish, but my personality is in English. And if you can't learn English, then I'm not that important to you because this is my real self. And I work with words all the time. And this to me is, is, is gold. And if you aren't willing to learn even a little bit of English or even try, then we have nothing in common. And I still hear from him every few months saying, um, you know, all I need is a passport renewal and an airplane ticket. And I keep saying, good. But I had an interesting, I had an interesting experience on so. So I would go for two weeks, sometimes two months, sometimes a month. Some it was it was hard. It was mostly illegal. I brought things, instruments for the orchestra and medicine for the this and nail polish for his daughter who was doing nails. She was a a, a dentist. And a child's uh, dental surgeon and uh, an orthodontist earning about $19 a month and did manicures and pedicures for Ventisencos and Davos, 25 cents a piece on weekends <laughs> to buy vegetables. So I would bring her nail equipment and nail polish and stuff. She couldn't get there. You know, it was, it was a 
a strange thing. I knew it was always going to be off balance. But when he finally just refused to learn English, I think that was the thing that did it. Good. So I'm trying to see what I can do. It's going to take me a while. I'm working slowly, but I'm having fun with it. I'm really glad that you joined us for the interview today uh, and for the book. Oh, I am too. (laughs) There's probably lots and lots to say about it and lots of questions to ask me, but I hope people read the book because I think it has a lot to say. I think it has a lot to say. Obviously, it's a a window into, in a sense, mid-century treatment um, from your point of view. Uh, And then, as I said, I think it's it's clinically useful to, to read. Thank you so much. You're welcome.